morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're continuing our study through this fourth gospel. You know, I think we're all aware that as Christians, we are called to be like Christ. It's kind of what Christian means. We're Christ-like. In order to be like Christ, though, we have to know what He's like. And I think the best way to learn about Christ is to spend time in the Gospels. You know, lots of books discuss views and ideas about Him, but the Gospels reveal Christ. Every story, every statement, every teaching unfolds some aspect of His divine and human nature. The beauty of His character, the faithfulness of His redemptive work, and His call for us to follow Him. So as we study this fourth Gospel, we are reviewing, we are experiencing what our Lord and Savior is like, and therefore we're seeing this is what we are supposed to be like. Now, we're looking at the miracles, and we can't do those, okay? We can't follow every aspect for, for certain of who He is, but He has given us an example that we should follow. Now, we just finished the study of chapter 5, which dealt with some very important teachings on who Yeshua really was. He was accused by the Jewish leaders of making himself equal with God. And he responds to that accusation by saying, you're right. You're right, that's exactly what I'm saying. I'm equal in every way with God the Father. And then he starts laying out these evidence. Let me tell you, I really enjoyed going through chapter 5. I mean, especially 5.18-30, it just so clearly deals with the deity of Christ. You know, you just it, that's where you need to send somebody if they're questioning that. Send them to John 5. Go through that teaching. It is very clear. And so then as we come to chapter 6, Yeshua kind of wants to see, did you get what I said in 5? Okay, so let's give you a little test here and see if you got it. And basically, he's doing this for his disciples, of course. And guess what? They didn't get it. <laughs> That's hard to believe, isn't it? We can't be too hard on them, though. Okay, we're, the, we're in the same boat. The miracles that we're going to look at today are the miracle of this feeding this large number of people here is the only miracle besides that of the resurrection that's recorded in all four Gospels. I think that tells us it's, it's pretty important. But in the fourth Gospel, it's not just a miracle, it's a sign. Now John gives us seven signs throughout this book. This is one of the signs that serves to preface Yeshua's teaching on the bread of life. Now so in, both, in chapter 5, he does a miracle, uses the rest of the chapter to explain, expound on what that's about. Alright? That miracle of five was to get them upset because he did it on the Sabbath. So, hey, you, who do you think you are, God? Yep, that's right. So he expounded on it. In chapter five, he's going to do another, six, he's going to do another miracle. Then he's going to expound on that miracle in his teaching on the bread of life. So this is, if we're following miracles here, this is the fourth miracle that Lazarus recorded for us so far. First one was the wine. At the wedding in Cana. That was kind of a private miracle. Not too many people knew about that. The second one was in chapter 4, the healing of the nobleman's son. Again, not many people were aware of what was going on there. The third one was in chapter 5, and that was the man at the pool. But there's a lot of people were aware of that. That was a public, that was an open miracle. He heals a man in front of all these people. And today we're looking at another miracle where he's going to feed a ton of people. Now, this section of the text records the high point of Yeshua's popularity. He comes on the scene in ministry. He starts doing these miracles. And you can imagine, people like miracles. So the popularity starts to grow. This is the high point of His popularity. And this is the only chapter in John that treats the Galilean phase of His ministry. The synoptics really focus on the Galilean. Phase. This is the only chapter in John, though, that focuses on that phase. Let's look at our text. John 6, 1. After these things, Yeshua went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. After these things. This is a Greek expression, metatauta, which is the same expression that introduces 5, 1. 
It's kind of a vague expression that establishes sequence, but not chronology. It's kind of a generic statement that we're now leaving the subject of five, we're moving to a completely different scenario. That's what he wants us to get. Metatauta, after these things. Now, the last geographical reference in chapter five, put Yeshua in Jerusalem. Now we're going to see that he's at the Sea of Galilee. So Lazarus has moved the scene. We've left Jerusalem where the last scene took place. Now we're at the Sea of Galilee. So we've jumped to a new location in a different period of time. So the connective phrase, metatata, it doesn't tell us the precise historical context that went before the feeding. It just says after these things. And you've got to say, after what things? Okay, what, what's he talking about? Well, certainly after chapter 5, but there's other things that took place. Well, if we look at the other Gospels, they kind of fill in what was going on. And, and something Matthew says here is kind of important. Matthew 14, 13. Now, when Yeshua heard about John, we know who John was, right? John the Baptist. Yeshua's cousin, right? They were involved in ministry together. He withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. He gets a boat, goes off by himself. And when the people heard of it, they followed him on foot from the cities. So what happened immediately preceding this feeding of the multitude is John the Baptist was put to death by Herod. And Yeshua, I'm sure, is troubled by this. He is grieved by this death. The other Gospel writers say that as a result of that event, Yeshua went off to be alone. So that's what happened right before our scene here. And he says, Yeshua went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias. Now the Gospels, there's several names that are used for this large northern lake through which the Jordan River flows. Here, Lazarus calls it the Sea of Galilee, and I think most of us are familiar with it by that term. But it's also later in time, the Romans changed that name to the Sea of Tiberias. And so he adds that here because he's got a lot of Gentile readers. Remember, this is written much later. And so, hey, by this time it was called the Sea of Tiberias, so he, he lets them know that. Um, this map kind of gives us a glimpse here of the mountainous you know, range around the Sea of Galilee. The mountains just came right out of the sea and, and formed this valley like that the sea is in. And we're told in verse 16 that this event takes place across the Sea of Galilee on the opposite side from Capernaum, which is on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. So it's taking place over here. All right, uh, This is known today as the Golan Heights. It's in Yeshua's day is a very sparsely populated site. All right, there's not many people over there. Pretty much wilderness. So Yeshua went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Well, how did he get there? Well, Mark fills us in on some details about that. Mark chapter six says he sent his disciples away and he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits. So he calls his disciples and he sends them out of ministry. In Galilee, they're going out and they're ministering in Galilee. All right. Then if we drop down to verse 30, Mark comes back to the discussion about the disciples being sent out. And here we see the disciples returning from their mission on which they've been sent out. And it says, the apostles gathered together with Yeshua and they reported to him all that had been done and taught. So they're telling him about the Galilean ministry, what happened. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and let's rest a while. Alright, so this is the going to the other side. They're going there for some rest. For there were many people coming and going. So let's go over to a secluded place. Well, I need to spend some time with you guys alone. We need to just kind of recuperate. Now watch what he says. There were many people coming and going. They didn't even have time to eat. Now that's pretty busy, okay? They're constantly ministering. Now remember, this is a high point of popularity. People are seeing the miracles. They're like, following him. So he can't get a break. They can't get away from the people. They went away in the boat to a secluded place. So the disciples and the Lord get in a boat. Let's get away from this crowd for a while. You know, the boat only holds so many. The crowd can't get in. We leave them. All right. Verse six, uh, chapter six, verse two says, a large crowd followed him. (laughs) He's trying to get away because they saw the signs which were performing on those that were sick. So they're in a boat. How's this large crowd following him? Well, 
Yeshua and his disciples are crossing the lake in the boat. So they got in the boat, and they would stick close to the shoreline, go around. Um, people at this time did not like water. They believed water was the opening to the underworld. And so when they got on the water, they tried to stick close to land. They didn't want to go too far out. So while Yeshua and his friend, his disciples, they're in the boat, here's the people on the land, and they're following right along on the land. They can see the boat. It's visible from where they're at. And so they see him, and so they're just going. They're following you know, right along. Mark says this, The people saw them going, and many recognized and ran there together on foot from all the cities. They're picking up like a snowball. They're picking up crowds as they go. They pass the city. Guess what? Yeshua is going over here. And they're like, whoa, let's go. And they're all just, it's like a snowball just roaring on. And they got there ahead of them. <laughs> They're going there for R&R, okay? When Yeshua went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. All right, on the Sea of Galilee, they say, I've never been there, but from any point on the rocky shore, all the other locations of the shoreline are visible. It would make sense. It's mountainous. You're up, and you can look down, and you can see it. So it's not too difficult for the people to watch this departing ship and see where it's going and follow it as he moved towards his destination. And that's exactly what happened. The crowds just follow him along and they're going where he's going. Now remember, Yeshua and the disciples, they get to the shore, they're there for some R&R. But when they arrive, there's thousands of people on the shore waiting to meet him. Word is spreading. There's just this messianic fever at this time. And so they're excited about what's happening. It's now almost impossible for Yeshua and His disciples to avoid these large crowds following Him. They just want to see these miracles. And as the people see the boat going across, they just run along the land to be there. They keep going through the cities. More and more people are following. By the time He gets to the shore, there's a huge mob. Now, let's say it's you. You're swamped. Your work is so intense, you don't have time to even eat. So you say, I need a break. I just need to get away for a little while. So you take a break. You go somewhere. You know, you schedule a place that's secluded so you can get away. And you get there, and there's a whole mob waiting for you to minister to them. How would you feel? How would you respond? These people. Well, the text says that Yeshua saw them and was irritated. No? That's not what your text says? You know, I think it'd make us feel better if it said that. We are supposed to be like Yeshua. But it doesn't say He got irritated. It says He saw a large crowd and He felt compassion. Wait a minute, I'm coming here to get a break. I need to refresh, but I feel compassion. Because they're like sheep without a shepherd. You know, sheep without a shepherd are a disaster. They panic. They don't know how to find food. They don't know how to find water. They're constantly in danger. So he looks at this crowd of people and he feels compassion for them. Remember what I said earlier, we're called to be like our Lord. The word for compassion here is a very strong word. The word literally conveys the idea of your heart contracting convulsively. We might say his heart was squeezed by what he saw or he was overwhelmed by the consciousness of human need. The Greek word used here for compassion is splagnizomai. And splagnizomai is found only in the Gospels and every usage is always related to human need. So what we see here, remember what we just saw in the last chapter, Yeshua is Yahweh. Our God is compassionate. And we know that if we know anything about the Tanakh. Moses stood before the Lord on Mount Sinai and Yahweh revealed Himself to Israel's leader and the first adjective the Lord used to describe Himself was compassionate. Compassionate. It's nice to think of our God that way. You know, I think sometimes we don't think, especially because our circumstances, we just think He can't be. Why would He let me go through this? You know, He's compassionate. Compassion belongs to the Lord our God. It's a vital aspect of His divine nature. So when we look at Christ, we shouldn't be surprised that He demonstrates compassion. The Lord Yeshua is a compassionate God. You know what that means for us? It means as Christians, as children of our Heavenly Father, we have a duty 
to imitate Christ in the area of compassion. We are also to be compassionate. We are to reveal to the world our God. And too often we give a picture that is no way, shape, or form what our God is like. You know, the world today is heartless and cruel. It just is. It has become indifferent to suffering. and It mocks suffering and pain. But as God's children, we're to have a heartfelt compassion for those who hurt, for those in need. We are to be like our God. How does this happen? I mean, how do we become heartfelt? How do we grow in compassion? I really believe this happens by spending time with our God. As we're in the Word, as we're meditating on it, as we're memorizing it, as we're just letting it soak in and we see who our God is. You know, I think we spend way too little time in the Word of God and that's why we act the way we do. We act on our own impulses, we act on our own emotions, and we don't think, I'm representing the Lord God in everything I do. The more you walk with Him, I'm convinced, the more compassion you will demonstrate. Verse 3 says, Then Yeshua went up on the mountain... And there he sat down with his disciples. So Yeshua went up on the mountainside to be alone with his disciples who had just returned from their Galilean mission. And the fact that he sat down shows that this is an official teaching session. When the rabbi sat down, that's when he taught. We do it backwards, we stand up, we teach. They sat down, that was indicating they're going to teach. Now only Lazarus mentioned that this happened on a mountain. And the word translated mountain here is the Greek word oros, which means mountain. <laughs> now, I emphasize that because many translations here will say hillside. Okay? They change the wording because the elevated areas around Galilee are not really what you'd call mountains, alright? But, I think the Gospel writers refer to mountain to make a point. All right, Yeshua ascends to a height to teach. He's on the mountain. The mountain's an important theological symbol which links the reader to the imagery of the Tanakh. A theological imagery. 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 Yeah. It's not, it's my tongue. It's not the glasses. I can see just fine. It links us to a theological imagery of what takes place on mountains. Now, the first thing you need to think of when you think of a mountain is Yahweh and all the gods dwelt on mountains. The Garden of Eden was a mountain. All right. They, the gods, that was the view of the people. The gods dwelled on the mountains. And we come to the book of Hebrews. The inspired writer tells us, that just as Moses brought the children of Israel to God's holy mountain Sinai, now Christ has brought the new covenant people to God's holy mountain. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to a myriad of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to all the spirits of righteous men made perfect. Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the church, these are all synonyms for the kingdom of God. The church is God's holy mountain. Just as Mount Moriah had been for the old covenant people, as the site of the temple was there. Now the church is the site of the temple, because we are the temple of God. Lazarus also, I think, might have mentioned mountain here, to tie Yeshua in with a comparative relationship to Moses. Several things suggest this possibility here. I don't think the Gospel writers just used a word that popped into their head without something behind it, okay? There's something significant here. First, Moses has been contrasted with Christ in the closing verses of chapter 5. If you remember 5, you know, he talked about Moses in there. Secondly, John specifically connects the feeding of of the Jewish Passover in verse 4 here. We're going to look at that in a second. And the Passover had its origins in Moses' period, and the Passover liturgy in Jerusalem emphasized the manna that was provided by Moses. Manna specifically is going to be introduced in 31, verse 31 of this section. And 
The manna is Yeshua. So they're connecting these things together. And I think mountain is used in a sense to connect them. Now he says in verse 4, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Again, I think you, you can see that John's expecting his audience as Gentiles. I mean, do you have to tell the Jews the feast of the Jews? <laughs> they knew what the Passover was, but other Gentiles wouldn't have understood this, so he's explaining it. Now, we saw what happened in chapter 5 occurred at a feast of the Jews. Now, he doesn't really tell us what feast it is, but it was a feast. If that feast in 5.1 was Passover, then this is a year later. So a whole year. So Metatauta, after these things, is a whole year. If this was Passover. Well, let's say it's tabernacles. Let's say instead of the first feast, let's say it's the last feast. Let's say it's tabernacles that the feast in 5.1. This is six months later. So then Metatauta means six months later. Anyway, we know it's a period of time afterwards. We know it's another feast of the Jews. Now, because Passover you know, was near, the pilgrims from Galilee, the Jewish communities in the north of Rome were occupied in Syria, and they're traveling south to Jerusalem for this feast. And so they would be coming through this way. God ordained the sacrifice of the feast in Exodus chapter 12 as a perpetual commemoration and reactment of Israel's deliverance from Egypt. This is a deliverance feast. This is the, hey, remember we were in bondage, now we're being set free. This is set in the context of this period of time, Messianic fever is high. Passover would have been the height of Messianic fever. We're waiting for the Messiah to set us free again. D.A. Carson writes of the political implications of Passover. He says, the Passover feast was to Palestine, Palestinian Jews, what the 4th of July is to Americans. Or better, what the anniversary of the Battle of Boyne is to Loyalist Protestants in Northern Ireland. It was a rallying point for intense nationalistic zeal. So they're just fired up at the Passover. You were waiting for another Redeemer to come set us free. He says this goes some way to explaining their fervor that tried to force Jesus to become king. We'll look at that in a little bit. Verse 5 says, Therefore Yeshua, lifting up his eyes and seeing that the large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where do we buy bread so that these may eat? So they go to this remote place to relax, kind of regroup, but then this crowd shows up. In the synoptics, this happens later in the day. And in Matthew 14.14 it says he spent the day healing the sick prior to this feeding. Keep that in mind. We're going to come back to that. That's important. Prior to this, prior to feeding, He's healing people. Alright? Luke 9.11 says He spent the day speaking to them about the kingdom of God. And Mark says He did this because He was moved with compassion. They were like sheep without a shepherd. We looked at that text. Only Lazarus records that Yeshua approached Philip about this need. Now, that would be understandable since Philip was from Bethsaida. That's the nearest sizable town. So, hey, that's the closest town. Let me go see if Philip knows a good shop that we can get enough food to feed 20,000 people. He says this he was saying to test him. For he knew himself what he was intending to do. Now, the verb parazo here, test, is commonly used in the Gospel writers in a bad sense of temptation. But it is a neutral word. You have to look at the context and decide how it's used. It's used neutrally here. He's testing him. In other words, listen, we've had this study in chapter 6, however long ago it was. Now, if it's a year ago, you can give Philip some slack, right? I mean, who's going to remember it? You know, a year later that Yeshua is Yahweh. All right? So he's testing him. Did you guys get what we've been talking about, what we've been testing you, teaching you about? So he tests him and he asks, where are we to buy bread? For all these people to eat. What you have to understand here is this is an impossible situation, humanly speaking. And Philip answers, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them. For everyone to receive a little. Philip, just like Nicodemus, just like the Samaritan woman, Thinking on the physical level. We can't get past that physical level. You know, we're, we're all basically, you know, stuck there. He says, 200 denarii. 
This represents about eight months' wages for a working man. So he says, if we had eight months' worth of wages, it wouldn't even put a dent in what we need here. But you know what? They don't have money. They don't have any money. But if they had money, this wouldn't be near enough. There, what we have to understand here, they're in a desolate place, on a hillside. There's no resources, okay? There, there's nowhere to go buy bread for this many people. There's no fast food places, alright, in that time. There's no caterers. There's nobody you can call. This is an impossible situation. 20,000 plus people, they need some food and they need it now. If there was a town nearby, it wouldn't help. Okay, they didn't have Walmart back then. They didn't have a place where you go in and buy food for that many people. When I was a youth pastor, I was a Baptist. So, you know, we had a big day once a year. Big day. And the idea on the big day is get all the people in there you can get in. Because right after the big day was the pastor's conference. And then you go to the pastor's conference and you tell everybody how much you had in church that Sunday. You know, a Baptist only cares about two things. All right. How many did you have and how big was the offering? All right. Now, the offering, of course, is more important. But, you know, that was, that's important. All right. So he comes to me and he goes, how many kids can you have? In church, I said, depends on how much money you want to spend. He said, I I, I mean, that's bottom line. He says, I don't care. Just get a crowd. I said, fine. I announced free pizza on the day, free drinks, and everyone who shows up goes to Chuck E. Cheese for free. We had over 200 kids in Sunday school that morning, okay? So I took 200 kids to Chuck E. Cheese. Now, Chuck E. Cheese knew they were coming, all right? But I rolled in with four buses with 50 kids on them, and we start pouring in, and they freaked out. I talked to the manager. I said, you know we were coming? Oh, they were like stuttering and drooling on themselves like David scribbling on the wall. They didn't know what to do. This was a time in my life that I'll never forget because my wife goes, you do this, you do that, you do this. And I just stood there, and, I'm like, and everything starts getting organized and going into place. I'm like... Wow, I like that woman. That's good. She's running this place, you know? Then, yeah, it's hard to believe. Then it comes to the end, and with the kids' meal, they got ice cream. Well, they come to me and they say, we have no ice cream. And I'm like, well, the kids were promised ice cream. You said there'd be ice cream. The manager goes, well, what do you want me to do? Kathy said, go to the store and get ice cream. <laughs> so they send someone to the store, and they come back, and they're scooping up ice cream, you know? But you can imagine, if a, if a place like Chuck E. Cheese can't handle 200 people, how do you deal with 20,000 plus people? How do you feed those? There's no preparation here. They're out in the, I mean, you know, it's just impossible. And that's the whole idea. It's impossible. Now, if you remember back to chapter 1, in chapter 1, verse 45, Philip identified Yeshua as the one that Moses and the prophets wrote about. We heard about, he knew his Bible. He said, oh yeah, Moses in Deuteronomy 18 wrote about you. And yet he still doesn't seem to get it. Philip was a student of Scripture. I think that's obvious. So he would have been familiar with Numbers 11. In Numbers 11, Moses asked Yahweh a question very similar to Yeshua's question here. Numbers 11, 13. Where am I to get meat to give all this people? That sound familiar? Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? Now, in this event in Numbers, Yahweh accepts Moses' question as a petition, and he provides for the children of Israel. Philip should have understood that the Messiah has the power to do the exact same thing. And according to what we saw in chapter 6, Yeshua taught them quite clearly He is Yahweh, exactly equal to Yahweh in every single way. So Yahweh fed all these Israelites, millions of them. We only got 20,000 here. Should be a piece of cake, right? He should have said, well, let me say, Yahweh did that. You can handle this, Lord. Philip would have also known the story from 2 Kings chapter 4 about the famine in Gilgal, where the prophet Elijah took barley loaves, which we're going to see the same thing this story talks about, and he fed a multitude, and he had some left over. Again, another familiar story. Now a man came from Baal Shalisha, 
and brought the man of God bread from the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, there's the barley loaves, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And he said, give it to the people that they may eat. His attendant said, well, will I set this before a hundred men? He goes, this is nowhere near enough, basically, you know. But he said, give them to the people that they may eat, for thus says Yahweh, they shall eat and have some left over. So he set it before them, and they ate, and they had some left over according to the word of Yahweh. He knew that story. Surely he understood that Yahshua was greater than Elisha. He understood that, or he should have understood, that Yeshua was Elisha's God who provided this miracle here. I think Philip, no doubt, also knew Jeremiah 32. Ah, Lord Yahweh, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Boy, that's a good verse for us, isn't it? How many things are difficult? Nothing! Listen, if Yeshua is the Lord Yahweh in human flesh, if He's the creator of heaven and earth, then nothing is too difficult for Him. And also remember what I told you not to forget earlier. Matthew 14, 14. Here's what's going on during the day right prior to this incident. When He went ashore, He saw a large crowd and He felt compassion for them and He healed their sick. Philip had spent the day with Yeshua watching Him heal sick people. He's seeing miracles all day long. And then Yeshua goes to Philip and says, Hey, Philip, where do we buy bread so these may eat? What should Philip... What should Philip have said here? Well, he should have said, Lord, you are Lord of all creation. You can make the bread just fall down on heaven. You made manna for the children of Israel. No big deal. I've seen you turn water into wine. I watched you restore that man's son to life from a distance. I watched you perform dozens of miracles. This is no big deal. Are you testing me, Lord? I know you're God. I know you can take care of him. I can't wait to see what you're going to do. But Philip, like so many of us, thought things through on a purely human level. The disciples didn't get it. They saw miracle after miracle. But they can't believe for a miracle in this situation. Do you know what the disciples' solution to this problem was, according to one of the Gospels? you got a problem. you got to come up with some solution, right? Look at Matthew 14, 15. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate. The hour is already late. Send the crowds away, that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Lord, get rid of them. Just tell them to get out of here and let them take care of themselves. That's their solution. Send them away. You know, here's the thing we have to understand. The Lord didn't want the disciples to solve this problem. He wanted them to realize that, humanly speaking, there was not a solution. That's what He wanted them to see. This is impossible, okay? There's no human solution for this. There's way too many people. There's no way to feed them all. Verses 8 and 9 says, One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Why does Andrew seem to pop up here out of nowhere? Well, according to Mark 6.38, Yeshua told the disciples, you know, they came to him, well, how do we feed these people? He said, you guys go out and see what you can find in the crowd. Let's see what we got out there. All right, go search the crowd, see what we got. So Andrew finds a boy, he's got five barley loaves and two fish. Now, only from Lazarus do we learn that the five loaves and the two fish came from a boy's lunch. Okay, so little boy's giving up his lunch here. He informs us that the loaves were barley bread. This is a barley bread you got to think of little, small pancakes. You know, it's not a loaf of bread. It's a little, small thing looking like a pancake. And the fish were like sardines, okay? They'd be smoked or pickled. They were just little, tiny fish, enough to give the boy something to eat, all right? I don't think they ate like we ate. They ate more to survive than entertainment like we do, okay? So they had this little bit of food. And barley was the inexpensive bread for the poorer classes of people. So Yeshua's not giving them lobster and steak, okay? He's meeting their needs and He's giving them food. <clears throat> Verse 10 says, Yeshua said, have the people sit down. Now there's much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Mark writes, He had them sit down in groups of hundreds and fifties. 
Now, this took place in March or April because it's near Passover. The grass would still be green. In the summer, it would just burn up in this area. All four evangelists record the size of the crowd in terms of males present. 5,000. This was customary since the people lived in predominantly paternalistic culture. And Matthew tells us 5,000 men who ate besides women and children. Now, what's interesting here is Matthew uses the Greek word aner. Aner means man. It's a word that distinguishes man from woman. I know we can't use those kind of words today. That's sexist. We don't want to distinguish between sexes, but they didn't worry about that back then. Okay, it's a word used for a husband as opposed to a wife. So he's talking, there are 5,000 males here, and they would have been males of fighting age. That's who would count. And of course, many of them had their wives with them. Many had their children with them. I mean, this is a great thing going on. They want to be part of it. So the numbers have conservatively been estimated at 20,000 people. Now you take 20,000 people and you put them in groups of 50, that's a lot of groups, all right? Then approximately 400 groups of 50 on this hillside, just packed with people. Maybe there's a picture here of Yeshua as the good shepherd. You know, I think maybe the green grass, you know, he's making his people lie down in green grass. He's setting a table before them. This is the shepherd taking care of them. Verse 11, Yeshua then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, likewise also the fish, as much as they wanted. So Yeshua keeps, he got this little basket. The other gospel tells us this is a basket. The boy has lunch in a basket. All right? Yeshua's reaching in the basket, he's pulling out this bread, he's pulling out these fish, and he just like, a, you know, the magic trick where you just keep pulling the cloth or whatever, the handkerchief out, it just keeps coming out of the basket. This, I think, would have been similar, would have probably reminded them of 1 Kings 17 when, when Yahweh sent Elijah to a widow to be fed. You remember that story? He said, but Yahweh your God lives... I have no bread. Elijah Elijah goes to this woman and he says, look, will you fix me something to eat? You know, I'm hungry. Fix me something to eat. And this woman's out scavenging for herself. She just doesn't have anything. And she goes, as Yahweh our God lives, I don't have any bread. All I have is a handful of flour and I got a little bit of oil in the jar. I'm going to gather him some sticks. We're going back and we're cooking up something to bread so we can eat it and die. This is all we got. We're going to eat it and die. If you're going to die anyway, give it to, you know, Give it to him. It's not a big deal, right? But here's what the Lord, then Elijah said to her, don't fear. Go, do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me. And afterward, you make for yourself and for your son, for thus says Yahweh the God of Israel. Watch what Yahweh tells him. The bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty." until the day that Yahweh sends rain on the face of the earth. That little flower, you're going to keep pouring it, and it's just going to keep coming out. The oil's going to keep coming out until you got other provision. So we have a similar situation here in our text. The boy's lunch, it doesn't run out. Our text says that Yeshua, after having given thanks, now this is an accurate translation. In Mark it says, He blessed the food. That's a bad translation. The text actually records simply that Yeshua blessed. And this would be the normal practice for the Jew who gives thanks to God. A blessing of God for the provision would be spoken rather than a pronouncement over the food to bless it. In other words, they're not blessing the food. They're blessing God who gave the food. This would be a typical blessing. Blessed art thou, O Yahweh, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. In other words, they're recognizing this comes from you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you. They don't bless the food. They bless God for providing the food. Think for a second about this food they're eating. It's coming out of the basket. We've got two little fish, a couple barley cakes, but it just keeps coming out. This food is a direct creation of God. These barley loaves never were grain at one time. They never grew. They never been in the dirt. They never were prepared by man. The fish never swam in the sea. Yeshua 
directly created him. In other words, this was the best fish, the best barley you ever ate in your life. Okay? This is heavenly food. And that's why I titled this message Divine Dining. Alright? This is food from heaven. This would have caused you, I don't think, without a doubt, to eat a little bit more. You ever been in a situation where food's really good and so you just don't want to stop eating? Huh? <laughs> Especially here. I think they ate more than they probably should have because they're like, this stuff's incredible. Where'd you get this? You know, I mean, this is amazing. It's just the Lord's creating it. And it says in verse 11, they ate as much as they wanted. They just kept eating until they were done. And it says they were filled. So basically, he's saying, these people were saying, I'm stuffed, I can't eat another bite. This stuff is great. The word filled here is a word used for animal husbandry where they were foddered up. They stuffed themselves on this bread and fish. This is the ample provision of our Lord who declares, and my people will be satisfied with my goodness. They're satisfied. They're filled. They can't eat anymore. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. So collecting what was left over after the meal, this is a Jewish custom. They'd get everything together at the end of the meal that was left over, and they filled 12 baskets. Now, whenever you see the number 12, especially used in these stories in the Gospels, I believe that it relates to the 12 tribes of Israel. That's the significance here. Yeshua himself said, He chose 12 disciples, that they might sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I think this is a reminder to these disciples that Yeshua was the promised one who was to come to Israel. And the people probably got this connection. Hey, 12 baskets got backfilled. Each disciple has his own basket full of abundance. This is a messianic banquet. I mean, they were really excited about this. Now, did you notice that they gathered up the bread? But there's no mention of fish. Why is that? Well, let me, let me give you some eisegesis here, okay? You know what eisegesis is, right? You read it in the text stuff that's not there. You know, anybody that's got a doctrine has a verse to prove it, right? So, this is my verse on proof that the ketogenic diet is biblical. <laughs> Do you get it? They ate all the fish. They didn't want that bread. No, we're on a ketogenic diet. We don't have carbs. Thank you. Give all the bread back. We're eating fish. Of course I'm joking. I've got to emphasize that because someone's going to say, oh, you're crazy. No, but people will do stuff like that. They'll take a verse like that and make up some doctrine over it, all right? I think the reason, I don't think they were on the ketogenic diet. See, back then, bread was totally different from what we eat today. Totally different. It was 13 chromosomes. Ours today is so, you know, distorted that it's not healthy. But this was good bread, especially this bread. This was heavenly bread, okay? This was good for them, so they wouldn't have passed this stuff up. I think he only mentions bread here because he's, de- he's going to deal in the discourse with Yeshua being the bread of life. Okay? He's the bread of life, not the fish of life. So he's the bread of life, so that's the emphasis is on the bread that was picked back up. Alright, in this story of Yeshua feeding 20,000, people come face to face with the supernatural. Or do they? I mean, there are some logical explanations as to how this happened. Okay? All you got to do is read a liberal commentator and they'll explain to you because they can't do a miracle. So they'll explain to you what happened. And a couple suggestions are this. Okay, this little boy gives up his lunch. That inspires the whole crowd to share and they all give their lunches and everybody's happy. Oh, and that makes sense, right? In other words, they all already had enough food. So, you know, they just ate their own lunches basically, you know? Another is they said, well, this is just kind of a sacramental meal. Everybody got a little bite and a little, you know, a little piece, and that was it. It's representative. It doesn't mean that they really eat. But see, if feeding the 20,000 had been the result of people sharing, or if everybody had a communion-sized dose of food, would that inspire the people to say, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world? This is amazing. This must be the prophet God promised because everybody shared. No. 
I don't think so. I think the view of the crowd here is that this miracle is so great that they're convinced this is the promised Messiah. Now, there's obviously nothing in this text to support the popular liberal interpretations of the miracles, you know, of making people share, or everybody just got a little bite. Our text says this, all right, and that's what is important. Well, what say? How did the liberals get this out of the text? The text says, what's the text say? They ate as much as they wanted. It didn't say they had a little bite. They ate as much as they wanted. And it says they were filled. I'm stuffed. I can't eat anymore. I mean, he makes the emphasis in the text. There was just a lot of food there. All right? The people saw Yeshua as the promised Messiah of Deuteronomy 18. He, they saw Him as the new Moses. The one who is to be the Messiah. And certain segments of Judaism expected the Messiah to repeat the miracle of the manna. Alright, if you have that in mind and you see this going on, this expectation appears to have arisen from the combination of understanding the Messiah as a prophet like Moses and the general view that in the Messianic age there's going to be a utopian abundance. So the feeding of 5,000 enabled Yeshua to affirm His Messianic ministry without uttering a single word about Messiahship. They're, they're getting it. They're saying, this must be the Messiah. Now think about the setting here. During the wilderness, just like they were in the Exodus, they've been divided into numbered groups, just like in the Exodus. And the great teachers miraculously provided bread from them to eat, just like God provided manna in the Exodus. And what's more, after they collect the leftovers... As was the Jewish custom, they discover they have filled 12 baskets. A basket for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Everyone sees the significance of that. Surely this is it. This is the time when Israel will regain its political, its religious independence. This is the time when Messiah will overthrow the Roman oppressors and we will be free. And the people, I mean, you can they're working up. And so verse 15 says, So Yeshua, perceiving, he, okay, this is getting dangerous here, they're intending to come and take me by force to make me the king. So he withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. He knows what the crowd's thinking. He knows they're about to take him by force. Moses provided military leadership for the Israelites. He liberated them from oppression of the Egyptians. And these Jews concluded Yeshua is about to do the same for them now. Secure his political kingship by force. Let's go take him. Let's make him be our king. And our text says that Yeshua withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Now Mark adds a few details here. Look at what Mark says. And immediately, he made his disciples get in the boat. This is immediately after the feeding them. He made them get in the boat ahead of him to go to the other side of Bethesda while he himself sending the multitude away. Now Mark says immediately. This is one of the favorite words of Mark if you remember our study back then. It's not a month later, not a week later, right then. Fed them, get in the boat, guys. Let's get out of here. And it says he made them get in the boat. Angenkadzo, it means he forced them into the boat, get in the boat, and get out of here. Wait a second. Let's bask in this enjoyable miracle, man. We just had a great meal. I hate to eat and run. You know, let's stick around and the, you know, the crowd's just so excited. No, get in the boat and get out of here. Think about the dynamic, dynamic of this situation. Here's the sizable crowd, over 20,000 people, enthusiastic about Yeshua. Popularity is at its high point. They want to make him king. Well, he's got disciples. So if he gets to be king, guess what? They get prominent positions in the administration. So they're like, hey, this is pretty cool, you know? They could have got swept away with this whole messianic fever. So Yeshua puts them in a boat, get out of here, and sends them across the lake. That crowd's desire for a national political messiah was not Yeshua's plan. His kingdom, as he made clear, was a heavenly kingdom, was a spiritual kingdom. When Pilate asked, are you king of the Jews? He responded, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, that my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. In other words, yeah, I'm a king, but not the kind you think I am. They need to move beyond the physical and see the kingdom of God. But to avoid that situation in, in a, a coup basically taking place there, puts them in a boat immediately, sends them away, he goes back to the mountain. You know, the disciples, 
just like us. Put in a test. And their solution to all the problems is natural. Don't we do that? We have a problem. Let's figure this out. How can we naturally take care of this? Philip says, we don't have enough money. There's just not enough. We can't do it. Andrew says, we don't have enough food. There's only this little teeny bit. That, what good would that do? I mean, that's all they see is the natural. In the other gospel accounts, the decision was just send them away. we got to get rid of this problem. How do I take care of this problem? How do I make this problem go away? And what they and we often fail to see is that we need to trust, learn to trust Yeshua in every situation of life. This is a test. A test for them. And he was testing them to see, you guys understand who I am? I mean, they should have got it, okay? He made it very clear. You got but they didn't get it. And the same thing is true of us. Too often, you know, we walk with the Lord, we see Him do incredible things, we see Him take care of us, and we come to a, a trial in life, and we're like panicking because we just, oh, yeah, I know He did things in the past, but what about now? And we view the natural, and we can't get past it. Psalm 9, verse 10 says, says this, And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Yahweh, have not forsaken those who seek you. Those who know your name, we, we've gone over this many times, the name means the character. If you know the character of God, you can trust Him. Our Lord is trying to get His disciples to trust Him in this situation. He just spent all chapter 6 teaching them who He was very clearly. They saw the miracles. He told them I'm Yahweh. They still didn't get it. And I think... Sadly say, as much as we learn, we fail to get it in the crunch points. But we need to know His character. And we need to trust His name. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for the opportunity to look at Your Word. Lord, I pray You'd help us to not be like Your disciples, Lord. May our first recourse be to turn to You. Not everything else. Not try to figure everything out humanly. Help us to realize, Lord, who You are. May we know your name and put our trust in you for everything in life, for every breath we breathe, for everything we do that we would trust in your provision. Help us, Lord, not to walk in the power of our own flesh, but to walk side by side with you in the power of the Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Amen.